you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, It's so good to see all of you who are here with us in person. I want to say hi to all of you who are joining us online as well. Uh, If we've not met yet, my name is JP. I would love an opportunity to meet you after the service. Uh, And if we have met yet, still say hi. That would be awesome. So uh, it's so good to be able to be together today um, and to know that we're joining uh, with time in God's word, time through worshiping him, uh, time connecting with other believers. We're joining with what billions of people are doing across the world today uh, to be able to worship God together. And so uh, as we enter into this new series called In the World and what it looks like to, to connect and to be a light without compromising our faith, uh, we're gonna um, have an opportunity to unpack what that looks like, take the next four weeks that as last week we ended our Life on Mission series talking about influence daily, here's a little bit more of a a zoomed in idea of what it looks like for us to influence other people daily as we look through Jeremiah 29 today and the book of Daniel for the next few weeks. With that said, will you join me in a word of prayer as we enter into this time of God's word and what he has for each and every one of us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for each person who is here, whether here means physically in the building, whether here is watching online live, or someone who's watching the sermon or listening to the podcast later. God, I pray that each person who hears my voice right now would know that they're deeply loved by you. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself either in a new way or a real way for each person, that they would know why they are here for this message and for this time. God, I pray that as we dive into your word, I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, and impactful way. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are going to be in Jeremiah 29. You can start turning there. And what I want to start off with is how many of you... um, how many of you are as excited as I am that the uh, Major League Baseball season is actually going to happen? Is it anyone excited? Excellent. And so uh, for me, um, I, I like how we're holding our hands nice and long there because we're so excited about it. See, uh, here's the thing is I grew up uh, in the Bay Area, so I'm a San Francisco Giants fan. Um, murmur. Yeah, no, I get it. Boo. Yeah, no, you're all so friendly. Um, uh, <laughs> which plays into my point perfectly. So, grew up a Giants fan, and it had been years since I'd gone to the home stadium there. Um, And I had the opportunity, and was so excited to take my family there last June uh, for the first time, and we're gonna go later on this summer as well. But as a Giants fan, first, I lived in San Diego for two years uh, during college, during 2002 uh, and 2003 which meant that during the 2002 World Series, when the Giants ended up losing to the Angels, we were, I was in San Diego. So half the dorms would be cheering for the Giants, half the dorms would be cheering for the Angels. I ended up having my appendix removed, so I couldn't cheer very well anyways. Another story, not a big deal. So then I moved up to LA, and then you live as a Giants fan in Dodger territory, which is just, you know, I have a few emotional scars, but I'm okay overall. Um, you know, they would always be like, oh, we're better than you. And I'm like, I would just be like, you know, World Series is, you know, like I was, I was not friendly. Um, but now, 
Now I'm living in San Diego. And so we're able to, the reason I wanted the girls to have their first game to be in San Francisco last year, because they hadn't gone to a game yet. We've been here for a few years, hadn't been to a game yet with the girls. And the reason why is because I wanted them to experience what it was like to go to a Giants game, to be part of the home crowd. Because my concern was, not like a deep concern, but like, I'd stay up at night, is wondering if we brought them to a Padres game for their first experience, even if it was against the Giants, would they be swayed by the Padres fans around them? Would they look around and be like, yes? See, this is not an, I wasn't asking, this is a rhetorical question. No, so this idea of recognizing, okay, I want them to have their home field experience with the Giants. That way, when we go to a Padres game that they're playing the Giants, it's a little bit more, you know, they, they have their allegiances correct and we raise them in the way and they will not depart from it. Um, so here's the thing, I could show up and so I went to a couple of Padres games last year, one with some friend, with a friend, a couple friends, and then another time we went as a family. When I went with friends, I wore like a very plain like brown shirt that I had that was no affiliation. So I was like, I wasn't wearing Padres gear, but I was enough to like kind of generally blend in. Um, when I went with our girls, like we had our Giants hats on and our Giants shirts on. And so, uh, you know, you're able to stand out. And thankfully, Padres fans, you are, you are nice to me and nice to our family, which I appreciate. But I've been to games uh, when I went to Dodger Stadium. They were playing the Cubs, actually. But I remember seeing a Dodgers fan hitting a Cubs fan with a baseball bat. Like I've seen, I've seen, we called 911 and we tried to figure, I've seen fans be awful to one another because they like a different team. And so, so what do I do? When I think, okay, I'm going to go up to a Padres game. I'm not rooting for the Padres, but I'll wear brown to like kind of blend in. Um, it's this idea of acknowledging the fact that when you're in a place that's not your home stadium or in your home, we have to navigate this dynamic of do we blend in? Do we stand out? Do we just try to do well and get along with the people around us? How is it that we navigate what it looks like to be in, in my case, you know, sports exile away from my home crowd? What does it look like to be in a real exile when we are in a culture that is far from God? Do we kind of blend in by wearing, you know, not brown shirts, but you know, do we kind of blend in? Do we boldly stand out? Do we antagonize and just point to, you know, World Series? You know, are we, are we negative? Or do we figure out a way to be a part of the world, to be in it, but not of it? So as we're in our In the World series, that's what we're looking at here. And so our sermon today is the church in exile. We're starting off with a different kind of exile that we know the very real dynamic of people who are in exile throughout our world right now. We know that there are people who are away from their homes, whether it's because of different dynamics within their country, whether it's because of a war that's going on in Ukraine, whether it's because of other cultures around the world who are experiencing exile. And they are geographically removed from their home, whether willingly or, or not willingly, but people are moved away from their home field, from their home base, from their home and their lives, and navigating what it's like to be an actual exile, longing for your home, but knowing you're living somewhere else. And so 
This is the kind of exile that the Israelites experienced. That in Jeremiah 29, we're going to look at a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the Israelites that were in exile. Now, if you've been in church um, for a decent amount of time or things like that, if I say the passage Jeremiah 29, does any verse immediately pop to your mind? Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Which says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future, right? Like super encouraging. It's a kind of, the kind of verse you put on your t-shirt or you put like on a coffee mug, the kind of verse you have as a frame hanging up in your house. And it's a beautiful verse, an encouraging verse. And yet I would posit that sometimes we look at that verse and we hang that on to a, this is a personal plan that God has for me individually to give me prosper, prosperity right now. Which, can that be true? Yes, but let's look at the context of what this passage is saying. This context is not a letter written to people who are doing very well in their home state, in their home country, and they're very happy about all things, and God reminds them, I've got a plan for you. This is written to people who are in exile. Let's start in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. It starts off like this. I'm oh, sorry, I'll start in verse 1 just to give the context. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See, in verse 1, we see that it's Nebuchadnezzar who carries them into exile. And yet, verse 4 gives us a different view from the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is a different kind of exile in two different ways. The first way is that where a lot of exiles are ones that a, a, a conquering country would take people away. And in this case, the brightest of the brightest, the smartest people were removed from Babylon, or excuse me, from Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, and then they were indoctrinated with Babylonian teachings, philosophies, religions, and eventually, essentially, the, the brightest of the bright were stripped of their Jewish culture. And then they were raised up, and, and they were there part of spreading Babylonian culture. It was a way to cut the legs off of the Jewish culture continuing on, and this happens in different exile communities. But notice, one, this was one that it wasn't Babylon that really carried them. It was God sent them into exile. God carried them in to a devastating circumstance. You ever have devastating circumstances that it's hard to believe that God would bring you to and through? You ever have those moments where you say, God, why this? Why now? Why am I having this struggle? Why are we going through this? Why is our family suffering? Why is our country going through this? Why is our world experiencing this? And we talked about this a year ago in our Habakkuk series, When God Doesn't, and reminding ourselves that God loves us so much that if we have anything that we put above him, he will do whatever it takes to bring us to our knees to follow him. Which sounds... It sounds off. It sounds harsh. But if, when I was in, uh, when I was a, um, in high school, I had a, a teacher there who I had shared with before. She was one of my favorite teachers. Um, and I struggled with depression and I was struggling with being suicidal. And I remember that I told her one day after, after class, you know, I'm, I'm feeling suicidal. 
And I get a call from the counselor at the, church, at the school and they call me in and I remember I went into my teacher's classroom. It was my favorite teacher. And I wrote like, I just wrote, you betrayed me on the, the whiteboard. And I gave her the cold shoulder for the rest of the school year. And it wasn't until the next year, senior year, that I realized that she cared about me enough to do the hard thing so that I could find healing. See, God loves us enough that he may bring us to and through hard things. He'll bring us to hard things so that through it we can find healing. And sometimes the depths of our um, the depths of our difficulty or what we're holding on to may equate to how long it is that we experience difficulty. In other words, if I lose weight and it takes me a certain amount of months to gain it back again, it'll take me that same amount of months to lose it again. See, God carried us into exile or his people into exile to bring them back to him, to show them the purpose he had for them. And it didn't feel like prospering and hope. It felt like harm. But as we'll signal in a few minutes as we get to verse 11, his plan is far bigger, grander, and longer viewed than ours is. So that's one reason why it's a different exile is because it was an exile that God brought his people into. And we see the pattern throughout the book of Judges in the Old Testament that the people of God would fall away from God and would start to, to, to follow different things and go after other gods and goddesses and other idols and, and they would start to fall away and then another country, another country would come over and rule them. And then they would cry out for a deliverer, for a judge. God would send a judge. The judge would conquer the enemy. They'd come back to God and then the cycle would start all over again and they slowly start to fade away. They start to do things they shouldn't do. Another country is sent in by God to bring them into difficulty they cry out for deliverer. God sends the deliverer. They come back to God and the cycle continues. And it's really easy for maybe me as sometimes I, I joke before that uh, JP should stand for just praying, uh, but sometimes JP can stand for judgmental pastor, right? In the sense of just recognizing like, how can, how can we fall in the same pattern? And then I look in the mirror and realize that I can fall in the same pattern of wanting to do the right thing and then you don't keep doing it and then all of a sudden something difficult comes and we draw close to the Lord and the cycle continues. See, the difference is, is that not only is this a different exile because God brought them into it in order to bring them closer to him. It's also a different kind of exile because we now are in an exile that is not a geographical one. We are not like men or women and children who are exiled from Ukraine and then the men are staying back and fighting and people are staying back and fighting. That's, we're not a geographical exiles. And Erwin Lutzer, who wrote the book, The Church in Babylon, which was recommended to me by uh, one of our church members, says it this way. Christians are a minority in an increasingly hostile culture. We are exiles, but not geographically, but morally and spiritually. In other words, when I go into San Francisco Giants Stadium and I'm around other people like me, I'm like, oh, I'm at home. Like, if I make a reference and we cheer at the same time, it's, it's going to be great. If I go to somewhere else and I'm cheering when no one else is cheering or I'm trying to interact with people and they don't have that same thing, I can feel I'm not at home. That's geographical, but this is much deeper. 
For those of us who know and love Jesus and we have a relationship with him, we, we would be um, remiss to not acknowledge that our culture that once was trying to be founded on God's word and following the Bible has only fallen further and further from that standard. Things that are okay now that no one would have envisioned being okay decades, centuries ago. And so when we're morally and, and spiritually exiles, it means that you show up and you are in school and you talk about how you go to youth group or how you go and you read your Bible and you get Snickers and made fun of. Not Snickers, the candy. That would be delicious. Uh, people snicker at you, I should say. And they mock you for your faith. How could you believe that? How could you be so judgmental? It's when you're in your neighborhood and you talk about how you're having a Bible study over and they say, how can you believe that book? It's just full of fairy tales from 2,000 years ago. How can you even think that? It's so angry and hateful. It's going into your workplace and recognize that you have opportunities for advancement, but it would cause the sacrifice of your integrity. And you say, I'm not going to do that. And they say, why, why are you letting, why are you letting some, some God that no one else believes in, why are you letting that hold you back? I mean, these, these words that aren't true, but that's what the culture would look at. And they would put us in a place where if we follow Jesus and we're living for him, it can feel like a moral and a spiritual exile. We are not in our home. We are not in the safe place that we once thought that we were. We are living, living as sojourners and journeymen, as exiles in a culture that is increasingly more hostile towards Christians. So Erwin Lutzer unpacks three different responses that we can have to this cultural exile that we are in. And I'm going to go through these briefly because I got a few more things I want to unpack through the text. But the first example, excuse me, the first response that we can experience is the response of isolation. It's the response of saying, if, if everybody else believes this and we're on our own, that we're going to separate ourselves to the point where we don't even want to build a relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus. We're going to intentionally surround ourselves with people who know him and love him, which is good. We need community. But we are not called to be keepers of the aquarium. We're called to be fishers of men. We're called to go out into the world in order to be a light in a dark place. Jesus, if he wanted to, he could have stayed in heaven and isolated himself from the world that needed salvation. But as Lutzer says, Jesus came to a dangerous world and he shared the good news and we ought to follow in his footsteps. It could be dangerous to share our faith. It could be dangerous to be a light for him. And so some of us will want to just isolate. We'll want to keep people at arm's length. We'll, we'll, we might be friendly to people. We might say hi to people, but we don't want to build a relationship with them because we'd rather push them away rather than risk the ridicule or the mocking. Or we'd rather push them away rather than risk being contaminated by cultural views. Now to be clear, is it good for us to set up boundaries with people and boundaries so that we're not becoming more like the world? Yes, of course. But what is the condition of your heart? Is the condition of our heart that we are trying to build boundaries so that we can love people well while still standing firm in a world that has many different idols as we'll see in Daniel 3? Are we trying to love well and stand firm in a bow down world? Or 
it's the condition of our heart, we're going to build walls up against people who are different than us. That we are the us, they are the them, and there's no bridge there through which the gospel can be shared. Are we people who isolate? That's one response. The other response is assimilation. Assimilation talks about how we're not building up walls, we're building a bridge, but so much to the fact that we look just like everybody else. That's the example of, you know, showing up to a Padres game with me just wearing a generic brown. I don't want to offend anybody, but secretly I'm like a double agent, right? Like not really, but secretly I have an ulterior motive and I'm like, oh yeah, Padres, I hope you lose because we want to gain ground in the standings, right? Like you got you to gotta both in. But are we, are we assimilating into the culture to the point where we are just acting the exact same way as everybody else? Are we just as angry towards people who believe different things as they are towards us? Are we just as hostile to people with different faith backgrounds as they would be towards us? Would people look at our lives and they wouldn't see any change that the gospel has made because the gospel tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and to bless those who would harm us. Do we hate those who hate us? That's what the world does. Do we curse those who curse us? That's what the world does. Do we persecute those who persecute us? That's what the world does. And do we wish harm on those who wish harm on us? That's what the world does. So if we take into heart what Jesus has called us to do, we need to, do, we, do we shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation? Are we cities on a hill that cannot be hidden? Do we lit, have we lit our lights and we've allowed it to shine in the house rather than hiding it under the bushel basket? Because friends, if we're lighting the candle and hiding it, it's just assimilation trying to look like we are sharing the gospel or look like we're different. But in the reality, there's no distinction between us and the world around us. So friends, we're not called to isolation nor are we called to assimilation. But we are called to what Lutzer calls infiltration without contamination. It's a little bit more of a mouthful, but it still rhymes, so I liked it. Infiltration without contamination. When I was working at um, Mount Hermon uh, Christian Conference Center in the summer of 2005, uh, I was a camp counselor there. And there were uh, different, we would do, you know, we'd have Bible studies, we would have sermons, we'd have worship. In the afternoon, we would have games. We would have like pool games. And so it'd be different games you'd do in the pool, um, which were fun, like joust, like, you know, you stand on a platform and you joust and you like, anyways. Um, then there are other ones called field games, which were my nightmares and I don't want to talk about it. And then there were uh, mud games one day. In mud games, one of the days or one of the things you had to do was to uh, have a counselor go into a mud pit. And by mud pit, I'm being generous. It was just kind of a little bit of wet dirt. And so it wasn't like mud, like you would actually picture like caked on mud. Uh, Steph and I years ago had gone to, um, um, oh my gosh, now I can't remember the place, Glen Ivy. I'm so glad she's here. Uh, Glen Ivy. And... Um, you know, you go into like the mud room and it's like you put mud on yourself and then you just kind of sit around. Never understood the appeal to it, right? But like, that's a thing. That's a thing that people do for fun. Uh, and if that's you, that's awesome. Just don't invite me. And so, um, but I bring it up because when you do that, you're covered in mud and you're sitting there. When I was at Mount Hermon, 
I got joyfully selected to be the one to be covered in mud. And what you had to do was to, to, to pose in a mud, like in a statue, and the students would like cover you with mud, and whoever had the best mud statue would win. And so I grew up watching wrestling, not like the actual people who wrestle, but like the World Wrestling Federation and things like that. And so I had this like, ran, like a Hulk Hogan like move going where I was like flexing my, not my 24 inch pythons, but like my 12 inch pythons and like posing like that. And after a few minutes, I'm like, I'm already tired. Like with mud, like kind of dip, like poured on me. But you know what happened? I lost. You know why? Because no matter how much they tried to throw mud on me, the mud didn't stick. It wouldn't, it wouldn't stick. It wasn't thick enough. It wasn't, it wasn't being painted on and baked into me like a Glen Ivy. It was something that it just kind of went off. You were in there. You tried your best to just, you know, have, be in the, in the midst of that. And yet the mud fell off. Friends, we can go into a world and we could be a part. And no, we don't want to cover ourselves with sin to match and to fit. But when we infiltrate without contamination... What it means that we could go into a mud pit or we could go into the world around us, if you can extend this analogy. We could go into the world around us and if we're in a relationship with God, we're in time with prayer, we, he, we follow the Spirit and the Holy Spirit when he speaks, we're in his word, we're in community so as to keep us accountable from not falling into temptation and culture. When we're fully devoted followers of Jesus, in the mud the culture won't stick. And you could be the one that's in the midst of a mud pit and you look like you've been at the end of a Clorox commercial with bright white and you're all clean. Not from your own effort, but from God's grace. Here's how Erwin Lutzer explains it. He says, exiles face opposition. They're misunderstood and are tempted to lose their distinctiveness. And, the, and as those who belong to Christ, we are called to spread the good news and yet avoid being ensnared by the passions of the flesh and the many seductions of the world. How do we match that, that tension? We want to be in the world, but we know we can't be of the world. We don't want to be tempted by the world, but we want to be able to reach people in the world. And what does it look like? Because in that exile, in the fact that we're not in our home, that God's word talks about how we are, we are journeying through this world, but our, the earth is not our home. Jesus made a, a prepared a place for us, and in his house there are many mansions, and I really hope that Steph and I get to be neighbors. Like, you know, it's like one of those where it's recognizing that this is not our home, but we cannot live here as if we don't care about it. Erwin Lutzer continues on, we want to be strong, courageous, and gracious, but also uncompromising as witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. We have a desire to stand firm, and if that desire to stand firm is not coupled with the deep love for those around us, we may isolate. We want to love those around us, but if that's not coupled with the desire to stand firm in our faith, we may assimilate. But if we can have truth and love, then we can infiltrate without being contaminated. We could shine like stars in a crooked, depraved generation. We could be cities on a hill that cannot be hidden. We could be a light that cannot be put under a bushel basket, but it gives light to the whole house. So now let's revisit our text and look at, as we have a few minutes left together, 
how does this letter from God through Jeremiah discuss how to be exiles in, or how to, how to be the church in exile? We talked about how verse 4 talks about how those who, God's the one who carried them into exile. Then the first point is that we want to settle down without settling. Settle down in the world without settling for the ways of the world. Erwin Lutzer has this list, and I modified it a little bit, um, but some of the content is there. But it's settle down without settling. Here's what verse 5 says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. What does this tell us? It tells us that if you, if you plant a garden and then you also eat what it produces, that's not a short-term commitment to staying there. It means that you're planting and you know it takes a season for it to be able to come to fruition and then you would enjoy the fruit. This is not a short-term commitment. He says, build your house. Settle down. Don't live like nomads. Live like people that this is your home with in mind the view that our home is ultimately with God the Father in heaven. But yet we live here not with a detached mindset of, I don't care what happens to this place. But one that says, I have enough ownership to care while I'm here. It's a different mindset between renting a home versus being a homeowner. That we know people that you, they can rent a home to people and the tenants, because they know it's not their home, they'll destroy it on their way out. Or they'll destroy it because it's, it's not theirs, they don't care. But when that's your home, you care enough to build into it. You care enough to invest into it. And we settle down in this world without settling and compromising our convictions and our faith. Number two, verse six tells us about how to build, not how to, but the importance of building strong families. Verse six, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. This is the idea of highlighting the importance of saying, listen, while you're in the city, you're going to have sons and daughters, and your sons and daughters will be married to have sons and daughters. Again, this is a long-term commitment. You're not going to be here for a month and a half, not even for a year, not even for a decade. You're in Babylon, exiles of the, the Jewish people. You're in Babylon for a long time. So build your families and teach them how to be resilient in the midst of a culture that is pluralistic, hedonistic, and far from God. Anybody else resonate with being in a culture that's pluralistic, hedonistic, and far from God? How do we build resilience in our kids through this? George Barna um, group put together a study, and David Kinnaman, who's the president of that, wrote a book called Faith for Exiles a few years ago. And what he unpacks is that there are four different kinds of exiles. Let me be clear. Exiles that he's referring to, this is in reference to people who are in like 18 to 29, kind of that younger generation, and people who grew up in the church, who grew up in a faith background. And so these are not people who are far from God their whole lives. These are people who went to church, went to youth group, knew children's ministry, were part of VBS, all those things. And yet here's how it broke down over a span of a decade. That 22% of them had a church background, were prodigals. Prodigals are ones that knew Jesus at one point, followed, said they were Christians, and then completely fell away. One out of five completely fell away from following the Lord. 30% were nomads. Nomads are ones that 
would still say they're Christian but haven't come to church in over a month and their lifestyles wouldn't necessarily match the ways of the Bible. Then there's 38%, almost, almost two-fifths, that are habitual churchgoers. The ones that go to church because it's their habit. They'll come and they'll come within the past month. And they'll consistently go, but they don't have the same beliefs or behaviors throughout Monday through Saturday that reflect that they have a relationship with God that's, that's really changed their life. It's they show up, they come, and they do some great things, but they also don't have that fully devoted follower of Jesus mindset. And then 10%, 10% out of all these kids, these students who are now young adults, are resilient disciples. 10% are the ones that follow what the Bible says and believe it's inspired word of God, who have a living relationship with God, praying and, and responding in prayer, have a community in God with other believers and are steadfast in that, and those who believe in the mission of the gospel. It's 10%. And these are hard numbers for us to look at. And again, this is for the younger generation, so it doesn't reflect most of the people in this room at this moment. But it does show us that those of us who are parents or if you're grandparents or even if you, aunts, uncles, if you're investing in this generation that's younger, it's acknowledging how important it is for us to exemplify what it means to be resilient in our discipleship and following Jesus. Because we want to raise kids who love Jesus and who raise kids who love Jesus. We want to have generations continue to be impacted by the gospel. We want to build strong families. And so I shared this with someone earlier uh, after the first service because, um, you know, they expressed after the sermon just that there were, sometimes we have that tension as parents, especially if we're parents of grown-up kids or adult children, and they've fallen away from the Lord. And we could feel that tension of we haven't done enough or we beat ourselves up and we have that shame. And I want to encourage you with the quotation I encouraged her with. Uh, I read it in a book years and years ago, What Kids Need from Their, dad, uh, from their Parents. Excuse me. Um, and what the author said was that God is the perfect parent. And rumor has it even his kids rebel. What does that mean? It means that we're imperfect. We know that as parents, as grandparents, we know that. But the shame is not yours to take. That we are not perfect, but even the perfect Heavenly Father has kids who rebel. Why? Because we're all rebel whenever we sin. We are all fall short of the glory of God. None of us are perfect. But that doesn't make God any less of a good father. So let's Take the responsibility that's ours and let's let go of the shame that's not ours to take. Kinnaman says it this way. He says, in some ways, the church is not preparing young disciples for the world as it is. Cultural discernment is about teaching them not just what to think, but also how to live. And we must prepare them for this world as it truly is, not as we wish it to be. Here's, what, here's his premise, and I've, I've got to rush through the next few minutes. Here's his premise. Kinnaman's premise was the idea that because as a culture we don't recognize that we are in exile uh, spiritually and morally, 
We want and we long for our world to be just as God-fearing as it was generations ago and centuries ago. Or we want it to be like how it was. And so we raise kids as if they were raising them in Jerusalem. But these exiles knew they were not in Jerusalem. They were in Babylon. The way you train a child in the way that he or she should go is different when you are in enemy territory. You don't teach them that everything's going to be perfect. You say, when you get challenged or when you struggle or when hard times come, here's how you navigate that. You teach them to critically think and how to live. And so the problem is that, that Kinnaman posits is that we often raise our kids as if we're still in Jerusalem without recognizing our culture as Babylon. There's a quotation from a parent seminar I listened to last week that talked about how we need to not, or here's what we should do. We should prepare our children for the road, not prepare the road for our children. You've heard of helicopter parents, the parents that for a generation that would hover over everything that their kids would do. Then there's the next generation, the next reiteration of that parenthood was not hovering over, but they're called snowplow parents that would pave the road out of any obstacle that child would ever face. They would make everything around it so perfect and so easy that the child never learned how to face difficulty and be resilient. We prepare our children for the road, whatever it looks like. We don't prepare the road for the child so they never face hardship. Because when they do, they may isolate, they may assimilate, but they probably won't infiltrate without being contaminated. Number three. Verse seven says this, seek the prosperity of the city. Seek the prosperity of the city. Verse seven says it very directly. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. It's, in other words, it's not prosperity like pure riches, like, like just money. I think we have prosperity and we attribute it, we have a connotation that that word just means money. But the idea is well-being, it's shalom, it's the peace, it's the well, like everything is well and harmonious. It's seeking that within our city. It's part of why we work with the Community Food Connection here in Poway in order to, how do we help come alongside those in our city who don't have food and we can provide that? It's why we go next week to the Lado Fellowship and say, how can we serve the homeless in downtown San Diego in our city? Because we want to be a part of helping our city do well. It's part of why we have how I, or what I wish my parents knew, which is this Tuesday night when the local school administrators reach out to the faith leaders in the community and say, how do we partner together in order to help our kids prosper? Because our students are experiencing great anxiety, incredible depression, hardship, isolation, pressure that we can't even fathom. How does the faith community and the, how do they come together? And in J January, there's a meeting between the pr principals and Power Unified and many of us pastors and other faith leaders and saying, let's come together for the prosperity, for the, for the peace, and for the students to be able to, to do well in life when we see that there's a gap. And lastly, we already did the verse here. So seeking the prosperity of the city from verse 7. Uh, and then the next one is also from verse 7. So go ahead and go to the next uh, slide with the list. Is the idea of praying for our city. Pray for the city. Yes, you build homes. Yes, you, uh, excuse me, build families. Yes, you seek the prosperity. But you also pray for it. 
I challenge you, just a simple challenge this week. Whenever you are driving somewhere, would you be willing to pray for your city as you're driving by? If you see someone on the side of the road, whether they're at a bus stop, whether they're homeless, whether they're just people, friends walking along, would you be willing to pray for them? We don't need to know all the details to know that we, about their lives in order to pray for them. God knows. Would you pray? If you go on a walk with your kids or with your family, with your spouse, with your dog, would you pray for your neighborhood? That they would find hope in Jesus. Pray for the city, as verse 7 says. Yes, seek the prosperity, but also pray, for the Lord, pray to the Lord for it, because if the city prospers, you too will prosper. Lastly, the final thing we want to do is to remember God's promises. Here's where we come back to that verse 11 that we started off with that we want to hold on to, that we attribute to our own prosperity, our own individual plans that God may have for us, our own individual hope and our own individual future. But in the context, we see this is a letter that was written to exiles. It's a letter written to people in a culture that is pluralistic, hedonistic, and far from God, much like our culture is pluralistic, hedonistic, and far from God. It's written to people who are trying to be firm and to love well in a world that wants them to bow down. It's the kind of letter that's written saying God, telling them, yes, invest in your city, build and do all these things. And there is a future for you. There is a hope, but it's not as quickly as you think. Verses 8 and 9, Jeremiah, I'm not going to read it, but Jeremiah paints the picture of how there are false prophets who are telling the exiles, listen, you're going to be out of exile soon. God will rescue us. But God says, I did not send them. You're not going to be out of this quickly. You're going to plant fields and eat the fruit of the plants. You're going to take a while. You're going to have kids who get married and have kids. You're going to be here a while. Build into the culture because this is your home away from home for this season. But your home is always with me in any season. Verse 10 says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. The promise is not that everything's going to be fine tomorrow. We have hope. No matter what our tomorrow is, that we have hope in Jesus. That's real. The prosperity we experience is not money that's going to come all of a sudden to us in the next month. I mean, that's not what this is saying. He's saying that there's going to be 70 years. And in the end, you'll return to Jerusalem. Because God says, I, have the, I know the plans I have for you. And yet, many of the listeners to this letter wouldn't be alive 70 years from then. So they had to hold on to a hope that they could not see. As Hebrews says it, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So when we don't have proof that things are going to work out, when, when prosperity and hope and future may come at a date that we are not fully aware of or may not see the fruit of, are we willing to plant the seeds of a garden that someone else will get to reap the benefits of? Are we willing to be lights now so that the generations coming after us would be able to experience the gospel and be resilient no matter what the road is ahead of them. When we trust and remember God's promises, that he fulfills his promise, 
even when we don't see how or when or why things are happening the way they are. We don't understand the why, but we can always cling to the who. And if we do that, then we can make it through exile. And we could stand firm. To signal where we're going, Chris Hodges wrote a book called The Daniel Dilemma, How to Stand Firm and Love Well in a Bow-Down World. He says this, there's another response, not assimilation, not isolation. There's another response we see demonstrated in the Bible, not only by Jesus, but also by someone in cultural circumstances shockingly similar to our own. This example reveals an ordinary person thrust into extraordinary events and the challenges that forged him to maintain a faith based on God's truth and characterized by God's grace. And this person is the prophet Daniel, who we will be unpacking what that looks like over the next three weeks, looking through the book of Daniel, of how to be in the world, but not of it. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for each person who is, um, again, part of our service today. Lord, I pray for some of us, we, we listen to a list of isolation or assimilation, Lord. And if there are ways in which we have fallen into any of those categories, Holy Spirit, convict us and reveal to us. Lord, if there are ways that we know we can be better at infiltrating, at being in the world, but not of the world, God, Spirit, reveal that to us. Lord, if there are ways in which we can invest in the next generation and build into our home and pray for our city and prosper the city. God, help us to lean into that, that call, that action point. And Lord, for those of us who feel like we're just surrounded by harm, may we hold fast to your truth and your word that we know the plans you have for us. And his plan, they are plans to prosper and not to harm, to give hope and a future. So whether we see the fruition of that hope here on earth, we know that we have our hope in Jesus Christ like an anchor for our soul and our future is decided when we are with him. And we thank you for that, Lord. So Father, I pray that you would encourage us, challenge us, and draw us close to you as we continue this series over the next few weeks. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.